If you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles, we continue in Luke chapter 19 and we're kind of getting to the climax of the account of the whole of the book of Luke. And so let's pay attention to what the Lord has to say to us through this passage. Luke chapter 19 and we're looking at verses 28 to 44 this morning. Luke 19 verse 28 to 44. So remember last time we... Jesus told the parable of the ten minas. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which... No one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That is God's word to us this morning. I wonder as parents if you've gone through the experience of watching your teenagers making bad decisions. Yes? Or maybe even a spouse making a bad decision. And in your teenager's case, you've tried to teach them, you've tried to mentor them through their 16, 17, 18 years. But they persist in making unwise decisions. I see a few teenagers squirming. Tell me as parents, how do you feel when you see your teenagers doing that? Angry? Frustrated? How many of us weep over them? I'm sure there are some who have cried over your children. Well, in this passage this morning, we see the Son of Man, Jesus Christ Himself, weeping over a whole city of people, a whole nation 
that had heard him for the whole time that he was on this earth, and yet they hadn't listened. And as he comes over the brow of that hill, coming down the slopes of the Mount of Olives, he sees Jerusalem spread out before him. And the Lord breaks down and weeps over the city. Oh, that I had a heart of passion and pity like our Lord. That's my prayer. As we get to this climax of Luke's account, we need to just take time, uh, take note of the time context here. We've got four parallel accounts. And um, if you've got five fingers on your one hand, uh, you should have, except for Keith. Um, you'll be able to put your fingers into the various places. The, the different cameras we have on the same events. We've got four of them. The, this one in Luke chapter 19. There's another one in Mark chapter 11. And I'll just be referring loosely to these accounts because I'm trying to draw them together to give you a full picture of what's happening in this instance. There's Matthew chapter 21 and then also John chapter 12. And all four of these accounts speak about the same instance. So it must be really, really important. So some of the things that have happened very close to this time now. We've had um, the healing of Lazarus. Now to us, we kind of hear a sermon on the healing of Lazarus and it's kind of been a few weeks and a few months apart, right? But it's just a few hours and days that we're talking about here. So Lazarus has just been raised with the whole uh, effect that had on the whole city as they heard this news. Mary had anointed Jesus' feet at that dinner with that expensive ointment. Blind Bartimaeus had received his sight only recently as they were traveling towards Jerusalem. Zacchaeus, that zealous chief tax collector, had just been saved. It's just happened the previous day. And now Passover is at hand. That's why people are traveling to Jerusalem. That is why Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. Passover is at hand. People are expecting Jesus in the temple. We see that in John chapter 11. Why are they expecting him? Well, you see, Jesus raised Lazarus. And that really put the cat among the pigeons, among the Pharisees and the religious leaders, because he's not supposed to be raised from the dead. How dare Jesus do this? It's showing us up in front of our people. It's showing who Jesus is. And we don't want them to see. And so, there's this, if you've ever watched movies, it's building up to this climax point. There's this climax point building up. And the people are gathered in the temple, in that temple area, because is Jesus going to appear? What's going to happen? There's going to be the big face-off with the Pharisees. So let's see what Jesus does. Verse 28, we see a great purpose in him. Verse 28 of this passage. And when he had said these things, remember in Zacchaeus' house, he went out the door, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He strode on ahead to Jerusalem. See, previously in Mark chapter 10, it says that the disciples marveled at Jesus and his fortitude. And they even feared. Why? What lay ahead, you see? Jerusalem lay ahead and everything that would come with Jerusalem. And they feared it. Why? Because they were part of this group that was going with Jesus. 
They had a selfish reason. They feared what would happen to them as his disciples. And yet there's Jesus striding out ahead of them to Jerusalem, walking to his death with determination. And they wondered at it. But note, you see, they don't know Jesus' mind. Who is Jesus Christ, this one striding out ahead of them? Who is he? He is the Lord of the universe. He is the Son of Almighty God, Himself Almighty, because He is God. He is the one who is in control of the circumstances. The circumstances are not controlling Jesus. He controls them. He makes circumstances happen. He makes history happen. This is the one who is striding to Jerusalem. He's going to make it happen. Everything God has planned. And that truth hasn't changed. That same Lord Jesus Christ is still the one that makes things happen in our lives. Do we see Him in it? This is the one we're speaking about here. You see, earlier on in His ministry, the people had tried to make Jesus king and to present Him as king, but He had refused at that time and said, My hour has not yet come. We saw that early in John chapter 6. But now, Jesus not only allows these things to happen, but He arranges it to happen. He's controlling the timing. He's forcing the religious leaders to act. You see, the Jewish religious leaders had hoped to arrest Jesus, and we see this in Scripture, after the Passover festival had happened. Because it was really important. You see, the whole of Jerusalem was filling up with pilgrims from all over the then known world. All Jewish people and believers were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, that great time when God had released His people from captivity in Egypt. They were coming to celebrate, and there was the time of great feasting as well. Jerusalem was filled with people. And these religious leaders didn't want to create animosity among the people because the people were fickle. They would turn against the Jewish leaders in a heartbeat. They wanted to just keep things calm, get this over with, and then they would arrest Jesus and kill Him. But Jesus wants them to arrest Him now. Why? Because God had ordained that His Son would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and He wanted His Son to be slain, not after Passover, but on Passover as the Lamb to be slain for the sins of the people. This Passover. God wanted it to happen. And Jesus would make it happen. And so He walks on ahead. He strides purposefully to Jerusalem. In your mind's eye, you see Him walking ahead with the, with, with the, the uh, disciples kind of coming uncertainly behind Him, but going with Him. Verse 29 to 36, we see a different aspect here. We see prophecy fulfilled. As they approach Bethany and Bethpage, and I'll put a little map on there for you, just to have a look, it's very small. You don't need to see the details though. You just need to know that they've come from here, they're going through Bethany to Bethpage, and then down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and into the temple courts. This is not a long distance, that's just one mile, just over one and a bit kilometers, right? So it's not far. They're coming up the hill, through these two towns, and then down the hill into Jerusalem. Not long to go. 
So as they come to these two towns, up to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sends out two disciples with very specific instructions. What are the instructions? We read about them there. Jesus said, I want you to go into the village in front of you, verse 30, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Now note the intricate detail here. It's relevant. And I want you to untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this. The, master, the Lord has need of it. So very specific instructions. Now, as they go to the town, they were to get this young donkey that had never been ridden on before. Plus, Jesus speaks to them about a very specific conversation that will happen. I don't know about you. I don't know what conversation I'm going to have in a few minutes' time. When, oh no, a few minutes. In a little while when we're finished here. I bet it might be about the hurricanes or something. But Who can predict what we're going to say? And yet here's the Lord predicting not just what type of animal they will find when they get there, but a very specific animal... And also what words will happen between the disciples and whoever owns the animal. Amazing. But he's Jesus. And some have tried to poo-poo this and say, oh, it was all prearranged. Jesus had prearranged all this. And so these men in this village knew that when Jesus sent a message saying, hey, I need that, then it will be ready for him. And they just had to get, no, no, it wasn't like that, you see. You see, culturally too, Rabbis had the right to ask for the use of property for personal use. They could come to a village, they could say, my rabbi needs this donkey, and then the village was bound to give it to the rabbi to use. That was also a done deal those days. But who says the donkey would be there at the very time that the disciples came for it, right? There's too many things here that have to work together. You see, there's something far greater at work here, something much more magnificent. What is happening here? What we see here is Jesus predicting the immediate future and then making it happen. If He can create the whole world and the whole universe and everything in it, why could He not predict the very near future and make it happen? He's creating it. So He predicts the immediate future and so the disciples found that very same cult and they had the, that very conversation that Jesus had said they would have. And what was the conversation? It wasn't just the conversation. It was prophecy being fulfilled at the same time. Think about that if you're a betting person, and I hope you're not. Prophecy made 500 years before is coming true in Jesus' predicted words in that very moment when the, when the disciples walk into that village. Wow! What was the prophecy? Matthew chapter 21 verse 4 describes it for us. These are the words from the prophet Zechariah 500 years before. He said this. Matthew says verse 21 verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying 500 years before. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now look at the detail. And on a colt, the foal 
of a beast of burden. How is that? 500 years before, it was prophesied that the Messiah would appear riding on a colt. No one had ever sat on this donkey. No one had ever broken it in. A saddle had never been across its back. There's a very good reason for it, you see. It goes back to God's planning. Numbers chapter 19 verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 3. I'm not going to turn there now. I'll put the references there for you. But there God gives very specific details. When people were to use things for His glory, for His purpose, they had to be unused animals. They had to be perfect animals. And even the donkey, the unridden colt, had to be unused by humans for the Messiah's use. It's not unusual, you see. There are other details in Scripture. We could go into them, but I'll just mention them. For instance, how was Jesus born? Through a virgin who had never known a man. And I'm not being sexist when I say this. She had never been used. Do you get it? How was Jesus buried? In an unused grave. Amazing, isn't it? All these details add up. And here he is. And the cult that is reserved for the use by the Son of God is one kept specifically for Him all that time. That little donkey, those owners didn't know what it was going to be used for, but Jesus did, and God did, and He reserved it for the use of His Son. It was unbroken. And note, anyone who knows anything about horses and donkeys, the moment they put something on its back, the cult didn't bolt. Good rhyming there. It didn't. That's the natural reaction. It would have bolted. But it didn't. It was being used and controlled by the Creator of all things. Amazing. God had reserved this time, this moment, and everyone and everything in it for His Son's purposes and His plan of salvation. There's the big picture. And therefore, nothing happens by chance. Not in this moment, never. Nothing happens by chance. Even the very details in life are per God's instructions. There's hope for us there, and I'll come back to that right at the end. And so, as our account carries on here, verse 35, the, the disciples put their coats on the back of this colt. They take off their outer coats. They put it on the colt as a kind of a saddle for the Lord. And they spread their cloaks in front of him on the road. And they cut palm branches. And they start waving these. Now, they didn't just do that because someone thought, that's a good, good idea. Let's spread our coats. Let's cut these branches. No, this is an old thing. It comes from the time of Jehu. Back in Second Kings. When Jehu was proclaimed king, what did the people do? They put their coats down on the ground in front of him. They spread their coats on the horse that he was riding and it showed this is the king of Israel. These disciples knew and this is what they do. They proclaim Jesus king publicly. Amazing. Do you see the story unfolding in your mind? Those multicolored cloaks? Well, it gets more interesting, you see. We come to verse 37. Praise coming from these crowds. Now, you need to work with me over here. 
there's two crowds over here. There's the, the, the small crowd, we're going to call them the Bethany crowd, right? Because they've come from Bethany down the hill to uh, the Mount of Olives. So the Bethany crowd, camera one. What is the Bethany crowd? Consists of the 11 disciples. Remember, one is gone. And also the wider group of disciples that follow Jesus around. So there they are. They're coming over the, the brow of the hill. There's a small crowd that just put Jesus on that donkey. They're putting their cloaks in front of him. They're starting to wave these branches and they are proclaiming him to be the Messiah. A small group. And as they come on down the hill, people are standing around and they start joining in. Do you see it in your mind's eye? They start traveling down the hill. And what are they shouting? Very specific words. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. What is that? We read it this morning. Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm proclaiming the Messiah to be king. It's a specific psalm the, declaring Jesus to be the Mashiach Nagid. What is that? I'm speaking in tongues? No. It means Messiah the King. That's what the psalm is all about. The whole of it. And what else do they shout? Glory in the highest. Where have you heard those words before? The angels, when Jesus was born, when they announced that the Messiah had come to this earth, the king had been born, the, the angels used those very exact identical words, glory in the highest. And these are the very words used when Jesus is proclaimed king once again by people. Coincidence? I think not. God is in control. And this was genuine praise coming from these people who loved the Lord. You see, they had seen amazing things. These disciples that had been with Jesus had seen amazing things. We looked at those a little earlier. Lazarus had been raised. Blind people could see. The lame could walk. Amazing things. And so they were responding and proclaiming Him to be the true Messiah. Jesus the King. And then come with me as we cut to camera two. There's another crowd. They can hear the hubbub coming down the hill, right? And another crowd has been creating a stir inside Jerusalem. Who is this crowd? We're going to call them the Lazarus crowd. Camera two. They've been in the city and they've heard about Lazarus' raising from the dead and through the local newspaper, the Passover Times, they've read the news about this exciting gossip of this man who was dead and now he can walk and the, the Pharisees don't like it. And I'm sure the reporters of those days really made a big deal about that. And so this crowd was stirred up to see who is this man, this Messiah, this supposed Messiah, this prophet. And so here we see this crowd coming out from the eastern gate of Jerusalem and they're coming up towards the Mount of Olives, towards the Bethany group coming down. They want to see who this great prophet is and that's who they call him. He's a great prophet. Matthew chapter 21 verse 11 says they didn't recognize him. They thought he was just the great prophet. And in their minds it could be, is this the Messiah? Is this the political leader that we've been asking God for? The one that will free us from the Romans? Is this the one? He, he did all these amazing things. Maybe it is him. And so they too come out of the city, up the hill, shouting, Hosanna, 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Their words are different. Mark chapter 11 verse 10 says that they use these very specific words. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You see it's a political chant. Yes, it's in scripture, but they're using that for their political means, sweeping up the people with them, because they want to see a political kingdom established. So here we have these two crowds merging, and as they reach each other, they turn around together and they come back down the hill towards the temple courts. And here we have genuine praises of worship ringing in and merging with these political chants, also taken from God's word, but with a very different motive. And this massive crowd is growing and growing as they come towards the temple courts. The irony of the whole situation was that the very words they were using from Psalm 118 also has these words in the very same Psalm, verse 8 to 9. This is what it says. Listen to the irony. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. You see, this psalm which speaks about the stone which the builders rejected and which became the cornerstone is the very same psalm that they are using except they are using words for their own ends. And they haven't seen these very words which would tell them exactly what they are doing now. They were singing these words, but they were soon to act very differently because many in the crowds hadn't had their hearts changed by this Messiah. They didn't believe it was the true Messiah. And so this very same crowd would soon be shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They didn't see Him as the Messiah. Our count wouldn't be whole without the Pharisees. We need them here. Verses 39 to 40. Some Pharisees had joined the crowd. I bet they were there. Where the crowd was, the Pharisees were because they had to make the crowd do what they wanted. So here the Pharisees are joining the crowd and they come up to Jesus and they say to Jesus, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Stop them saying these things. Why? You see these Pharisees didn't dare silence the people directly because the people could turn against them like this. This was a great moment for the people. Why should they keep quiet? They wanted to be part of this whole thing. But the thing is, they asked Jesus to keep his disciples quiet. Why would he do that? He was making events happen which would lead to his crucifixion. You see, these Pharisees recognized the significance of this. They were so well taught. They recognized the significance of this Messiah sitting on this mule, uh, sorry, this donkey, colt, coming into town, and the people waving the branches. They knew the prophecies of the Old Testament. They knew what was happening here. They remembered the words of Daniel five centuries before. Daniel chapter 9, verses 14 to 16. What did Daniel say then? I'm going to read you some of those words. This is what the people had cried out to God when they were under under extreme pressure from being in captivity. This is what the people had cried as a prayer to God. 
Daniel chapter 5 verse 16. Sorry, 9 verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Look at their prayer. Now therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. That was the very prayer that the people had uttered to the Lord. Had God answered that prayer? He had. He had sent the Messiah to them and they would not recognize Him. But the Pharisees recognized what was happening. Because they they were very well taught in all these things. God had heard His people's cry. The Messiah was here. However, they refused to accept that this Jesus is that Messiah. It can't be. It won't be. And so they say to Jesus, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to keep quiet. And how does Jesus respond? He says to them, I tell you, if these people become silent... The stones will cry out. Imagine that. They're going over cobblestones. There's stones on the walls. There's stones everywhere in Israel. Alright? He says to them, if these people don't shout out, the very stones that I've created will shout out. Now there's more to it than that. It's not just speaking about stones here. You see, the Pharisees would have recognized what Jesus was talking about. He was quoting from Habakkuk 2 verse 11, where the stones cry out, praises to God. But there was wordplay happening here too because their hearts were stony before the Lord. What was the Lord saying to them? He's saying to them this, at least there are some here who recognize me as the true Messiah and they're giving me the praises due. And if they grow silent, that is, if they get hearts of stone like you implying, then the very stones, created objects with no real hearts, will get hearts And they will cry out to me, their creator, because they recognize who I am. You see what he's saying to them? It's an indictment on the Pharisees. He says, you have recognized me, but you have chosen to reject what you see. You are like the wicked citizens in the parable. We will not have this man rule over us. There's a connection. And then we've got, the, we've, got, the, uh, we've got the the beautiful fact that we can go in Scripture and see what happens a little later, right? It's recorded for us. Just after this account, John chapter 12, which is one of the other cameras, tells us a further response of the Pharisees. After this had happened on the hill, they'd back down in Jerusalem, and there's a big powwow happening between them. Two groups of Pharisees. One group saying, saying you should have killed him, you see? Now look what's happened. And the other group saying, well, no... The people, the people. 
And what are their very words? John chapter 12, verse 19. You see what you're gaining? You're gaining nothing by your delay, is what they're saying. Look, the world has gone after him. In other words, we'd better do something quickly. We'd better kill him. You see how they are working in and God is creating the event to happen. They have to kill him now. Otherwise, the people will follow him. And that's what leads straight into Jesus' crucifixion, which is about to happen. Then there's another response you can see here in the city of Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 21, which is another camera on this whole scene, says that the whole city was stirred up by these events. But what is the conclusion they come to? The wrong one. This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. This is him. How sad. Now, we've seen the city. It's in uproar. Look what happens now. The city is rejoicing. The city is celebrating. But the man at the center of it, what does he do? Verse 41 to 44. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He's on the back of that cult, weeping over these people who don't get it, who haven't got it for generations. And he knows history is coming to the point where God's judgment is going to come on them. And he can see it because he is God. And he weeps over the city because of what would happen to them because of the attitudes now. Do you see the heart of the Messiah? He loves these people who reject him. He loves them. He weeps over them. You see, they just see him as a prophet. They're blind to the reality of who he really is, their Messiah, the one who could bring them peace the one who could bring them blessing. They're blind to that. Rather, they've chosen religious activity as their God. They've chosen religious activity which has blinded them to their own predicament. They are lost. And yet here He is among them. And although some had responded, not all had. Some had genuinely turned to the Messiah. Some had been saved. Some were singing genuine praises to the Messiah, the one who is recognized as the Son of God, but many had not recognized the time of God's visitation. Verse 44. God had visited them. He had answered the prayer of the people through Jesus. And they had not recognized the visitation of God. John 1 verse 11 says it this way. He says, Jesus came into His own, unto His own, and His own received Him not. If they had They could have experienced blessing. They could have experienced peace. Rather in their hearts, they too said, as in that parable, we will not have this man rule over us. You see the indictment. The Pharisees, the people. And Jesus weeps. Because Jesus could see something more dire lying just ahead of them. In a few years, in seven or less decades, just over seven decades from then, Jesus could see that they were going to be totally destroyed as a people. Physical and spiritual destruction would happen to the nation of Israel. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 14 prophesied about this way back. And in AD 70, it's recorded in history for us, Jerusalem was besieged by the Romans, that very same city. And under Titus Vespasian, 
and they were destroyed. People were massacred. Over a period of 143 days, 600,000 Jews were put to the sword, killed. But that's not all that died. More than 1.5 million died because of what followed from that disease, famine, because of the siege which happened. Jerusalem was routed. And that's not where it ended. Titus also commanded the dismantling of the temple for two reasons. The fire was so great because they had set fire to the temple that had, had melted the gold and everything inside of it. And the gold had kind of merged in between these big temple stones. And Titus wanted the gold. And so he said to his soldiers, dismantle the stones. I want all that gold. And they will never worship here again. Dismantle the place. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem or you've seen pictures, you see the big temple blocks that that temple is built from. Well, those Roman soldiers who were masters at engineering, they lifted those blocks piecemeal and they destroyed that temple. Just as Jesus said they would. Jerusalem was held to account for its blindness. But you see, there was also total spiritual destruction because they had not recognized the time of their visitation and they would pay for it. And many who died in those days who never knew the Messiah, they died in their very sins. And one day when the true Messiah comes again, they will be raised up from the dead and they will face Him as judge. Well, we get to the end of this account, and as I always do, how does that apply to us? So what? I want to ask you so a few questions. Four questions and one statement. As Jesus weeps and Jerusalem rejoices, as you sit here in 2016 this morning, are you seeing but blind. Many of those people were. They saw all these things happening, but they were blind to what was really happening and who it was. Are you seeing but blind? What do I mean by that? Well, if you do not yet know Jesus Christ, the whole time period between when He was here on earth and now has passed. His word has been printed in full. Evangelists have gone out into the world. Missionaries have gone all over the place. Preachers have been preaching sermons till they blew in the face over all these years. God's word has gone out. But have you recognized the visitation of God on you? You've had opportunities to hear. But are you hearing? God is once again visiting here this morning. His word has gone out. The warning has gone out. The invitation from Jesus Christ comes out again to you this morning. There is danger and destruction coming if you do not know Jesus Christ. But if you turn to Him as your Saviour today and you give your life to Him and you repent of your sins and you say, Jesus, only you can do this, then you too will receive peace. You too will receive blessing in your life. God's visitation is right here again. Are you seeing or are you blind? 
Are you hearing or are you deaf? You see, God fulfilled these prophecies then. Jerusalem was destroyed. But that's not the end of the account. You see, if we go a little bit ahead to Luke chapter 21 onwards, we see that God has said more will come until the Son of Man appears. There is more history to happen. So tell me, do the math, will you? If he's done all the past up to today, what's to stop him from bringing all the rest, the future, into reality as well? Are you ready for that reality? He is coming. You will be judged. Are you seeing but blind? Come to Jesus Christ. I will help you. and We will speak through these things, but make right with the Son of God today. You, don't, you cannot predict what will happen straight after this. Only Jesus can. Be saved. The second question I want to put to you is this. As believers here today, and there are many of you sitting here today, do you weep for the lost? You see, many of us are just like the people of Jerusalem. We've got used to the religious system. We come to church, nice, we sing some songs, sometimes nice, sometimes not so nice. We just go through the motions. I read my Bible, mostly. I try and live as a Christian. Do you weep for the lost? Is there passion in you? Do you have a pity for those who do not yet know Jesus Christ in your family? your colleagues, your children, your neighbours, the city. Is there a passion for the lost? Do you weep for the lost? You see, there's this tension in us as believers between rejoicing in our salvation and compassion for the lost. That tension should always be in there. We should always have that tension in us. That playing between the two. It should never be one or the other, but both. There's a balance between the walk of discipleship and feeding our souls. And some of us are really good at that. But there's this other balance of weeping for the lost, of seeing those who are lost in our neighborhoods and responding accordingly. And I spoke about that last time. Taking the gospel out, speaking the words of the gospel to them, putting yourself outside your comfort zone and putting yourself into a situation of what's going to happen to me and speaking out the gospel in various ways to them. But we need to be doing it, you see. Otherwise, there's something missing in us. There's something that's not pitying the lost. We always cry, Lord, make me more like you. Well, that's part of it. I want to ask you a follow-up question to that. Perhaps this morning you have a heart of stone. If you do, if you find that you don't have a pity for the lost as you should, there's a reason for it, you see. Something else has come into your life that's taken the place of Jesus Christ as the one. What did he say in the video we watched earlier? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. You will be like me, says Jesus. Well, if we want to be like him and we haven't got the pity for people, there's something wrong. What is it? We're not being like him. Something has come in the place of Him at the center of our hearts. What is it? It's a God of some kind. We need to find it. And the Holy Spirit will help us to find whatever that is. We need to find it. We need to deal with it. 
so that we can be made more like God. We sing that beautiful song. Change my heart, O God, make it ever new. Change my heart, O God. May I be like you. And so we need to pray. Lord, change my heart to be like Jesus. Give me a passion for the lost. Help me to weep with real tears for those that do not that are not saved so that I can be more like my Savior, Jesus Christ. And what does that cost? It costs repentance. We need to come in genuine repentance and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Change me. Last question. Do you pray for Wanganui? With or without the H? Do we pray for this city? We saw earlier, nothing happens by chance, right? It's not a chance that you are in this city. It's not a chance that you and I are citizens here. God has designed it for us to be here at this very specific time. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you are here. Do you pray for this city with the heart of Jesus Christ, or do you have a heart of stone? Ezekiel gives us the answer. It says, pray, ask God to change us. And this is the promise God has given to you. And when He answers this prayer, you will pray for the city as you've never prayed before. This is the prayer. Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, I will give you a new heart. Praise the Lord. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Responding to who? The movement of the Holy Spirit in us. Lastly, there's a word of comfort here too for us. Believers, I don't know what's happening in your lives. As a pastor, sometimes I'm the last one to know. But I do know this, that there's one who does know. And it doesn't matter what is happening in your life. It doesn't matter. He knows. He's making it happen because He is the creator of the whole universe. And if He could have moments in time and create those moments in time down to the very little details, He's still doing that in your life. He is in control. Keep looking to Him. Keep finding your comfort in Him. He knows what He's doing. And He will make, what does the song say? Something beautiful from your life. If not in this life, then definitely in the one that we long for when Jesus comes. Trust Him. Serve Him. Allow Him to use you. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank You for this account of Jesus weeping for a city. Give us hearts that would weep for the lost around us. Give us the strength. Give us the determination like Jesus 
to go forward with your strength and to speak the gospel message so that people who are seeing but blind can have their sight restored and see you, the real, true Messiah, and be saved. Lord, use us. You don't need us, but you want to use us. Use us. May we have the privilege of leading others to you and seeing the change that comes about in their lives. And Lord, through all this, thank you that we know that you are in control of everything that happens to us and around us, that you know about it, and you are making your kingdom happen, stone by stone, soul by soul, moment by minute. You build your kingdom until the time will come when you will say, my time is now. And we will see your Son. Come Lord Jesus, we pray.